This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. As we have movement and friction, and also as we have this constant sort of recirculating old crust becoming new crust becoming magma, I kind of liken it to a pot of of minestrone soup uh, boiling on the stove. EM Weekly is starting right now. Welcome to Ian Weekly, and today uh, I have a really great guest. Her name is Catherine Miles, and she wrote this book called Quakeland. Now, she's written some other books as well regarding super, a Superstorm Sandy, but this one here specifically on earthquakes. And so since today is the great shakeout, uh, we really wanted to have her here and talk about her process of writing the book Quakeland and what she learned and what you will learn from reading the book. And I tell you, I read the book, and I learned some things that uh, I haven't uh, uh, thought about and as is really eye-opening. So, Catherine, thank you for being here and welcome to the show. Hi, I'm really glad to be here. So, what made you write Quakeland? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. And it's sort of it's a little bit of a long story, but I'll try to I'll try to keep it as short as I can. My my previous book, as you mentioned, was Superstorm, and it was looking at the nine days leading up to Superstorm Sandy, and uh, the decisions that were made, uh, both good and bad. And and one of the things that seemed to really resonate with people was this question of infrastructure and preparedness. And um, you know, as we were wrapping up the book tour, and my editor and I kind of looked at each other and we said, you know, there not enough people are talking about this, either in terms of first response, in terms of emergency management plans, and then in terms of both the sort of metaphoric infrastructure and the literal infrastructure. We just, we're not talking about this with natural disasters in general. And, and certainly nobody's really done a book-length project looking at this in terms of earthquake and seismic hazard. Uh, so that was literally the impetus for it. Um, in some ways, it was a natural progression from that first book. Um, and in other ways, it was a really steep learning curve for me. You know, I think a lot of the aftermath of the two disasters are really quite similar. We've seen that in, you know, if you compare, for instance, Puerto Rico and Mexico, some real similarities, but the obvious sort of like geophysics behind it, very, very different. So um, I definitely had to kind of put my geology uh, primer head book <laughs> on and kind of, you know, sit down and, and do geology 101. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of cool to, to meet in the book. You met a couple of the people who are geologists and, and how they got into it and got to learn some of the, the lingo, if you will. And so that was kind of cool there, too. I have a, a friend of mine, and she was an emergency manager here in California. She retired and she moved um, out to Texas. I actually interviewed her about Harvey. And one of the things she stated to me is that she would rather have a uh, hundred hurricanes come at her, uh, you know, back to back, I guess, and I don't think at the same time, than have uh, to, to about the earthquake. Because that's the one thing with earthquakes is we never really have a warning of when it's going to occur. And even with Lucy Jones, Dr. Jones out here in California, and she's really stressing the early warning system, it's really seconds that we're learning, you know, maybe maybe up to 45 seconds of knowing when an earthquake's going to occur. And the story that you have regarding the one in Yellowstone and the family who went to the campground when they were at one other place before and then they moved to the went to the campground how was that how did that affect that family i mean i know the two of them the mom and the dad passed away and you interviewed the two sisters how did that affect them through the rest of their life yeah and you know this is a really this is a very sort of historic and not well-reported earthquake. And that's part of why I really wanted to use it as sort of a narrative focus for the first part of the book. And this is what's generally known as called the Hebgen Lake 
quake. Um, and it was really only a moderate quake. You know, it didn't even register as one of the 10 biggest in our country. This was in 1957. And, and um, but for me, it was so emblematic of why earthquakes are so devastating and so problematic for many of the reasons that you suggested. And, you know, going back real quickly to, to my work with Superstorm, you know, I, I spent a lot of time down at the National Hurricane Center when I was researching that book. And yeah, again and again and again, the, the, the hurricane experts there who are without a doubt the best in the business would say to me, you know, look, we're just not very good at this. You know, we're, we're not very good at predicting tracks. We're not very good at predicting intensity. And yet they're infinitely better at understanding the mechanisms at play in hurricanes than we are at understanding earthquakes. And, and part of that is because, you know, literally when you take a hurricane, we can see it on radar. We can see it from satellites. We have, you know, the Air National Guard and we have NOAA who have these super souped up planes that can drop these mechanisms in right into the storm and record all sorts of data from wind to barometric pressure and things like that. And we don't have that capacity with earthquakes. So I think your friend, um, I think I share her sentiment, you know, and and so this this particular Hebgen Lake quake, you know, happened as they all do, frankly, in, in American time and history. And that is without warning. And, you know, what we saw with this earthquake and it was we saw a real sort of um, snowball effect. There was the immediate earthquake, which did a ton of damage. It also created rock slides, landslides, a little tsunami wave. And then we saw this ripple effect start to unfold because of the sort of geological orientation of where they were. They were in this sort of river valley because the phone lines had been knocked out, because basic sort of radio communication was all but impossible given the sort of valley walls. We saw this real scramble of, you know, trying to get first responders in, trying to get survivors out, trying to get them to hospitals that were prepared. And I think in so many ways, this is an example of, of what these natural disasters pose for us. And, and I was really um, honored to have a, a, one of the families who was, you know, really hard hit by the earthquake. Both parents were uh, severely injured. The mother died of injuries. The father survived. And three daughters went on to really, frankly, live with their own version of PTSD. And they continued to sort of feel the after effects of that. And, and so through their story, I felt like I was able to, to really personalize earthquakes and also talk about how it is that, again, a moderate quake by a lot of accounts, you know, could still do and will do so much damage and damage that we don't expect. If we have that Japanese earthquake that the you know nine on the Richter scale here in Southern California, it's predicted that we're going to have some serious issues that are associated uh, with water specifically getting here. Uh, Lucy Jones, again, states that we're going to be potentially six months without um, having any sort of water coming in. And that's like the big deal in Southern California. What has your research found as far as like the magnitude and what the real impact is on the population living in those areas? Sure, sure, and and we should say, and this and this may be commonplace for for some of your listeners, but but there are different types of earthquakes, right? And those big 9.0 quakes, like we saw in 2011, that caused the Fukushima nuclear disaster. That's what's called a subduction quake, and that's where we have two types of plates. We have a continental plate, we have an oceanic plate. We have them slipping under, um, and because they're so large and the area there is so massive, those are creating the really biggest quakes that we see on the planet. So the the 1964 
or Alaska quake, a lot of those Chilean quakes. These are all these subduction quakes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so a 9.0 quake we would not see in a place like Los Angeles because that's not a subduction zone. Right. We could very easily see that in a place like the Pacific Northwest. Um, and we have a lot of sort of paleogeological evidence to suggest that there have been repeated quakes that size and quakes that have created incredibly devastating tsunamis, tsunamis that would do really sort of unimaginable damage to everything from Vancouver down to Northern California. So so that potential is very real for that area. But I think that what was really telling for me in this research is that it doesn't take an earthquake nearly that large to do a lot of really serious damage. Mm. And so if you look at a place like, for instance, Southern California, where we have the closest thing to sort of mathematical certainty that there will be an earthquake in our life, if time, if we look at a place like New York City, which if you look at the return rate of previous earthquakes over the last 700 years, you know, if you look at those return rates, New York has had a moderate sized earthquake about every hundred years and, and really pretty close to exactly every hundred years. The last one that New York had was 1883. And so again, this is this is not a precise science, but you could say that that New York is 40 years overdue for a moderate quake. And, and what emergency managers there told me was, look, you know, even that moderate earthquake in New York would be enough to create more rubble than we saw in September 11th. Mm. And as you mentioned that um, with Lucy Jones's research, and she's just been tireless in her advocacy about this. And I think it's really wonderful. One of the points that she makes and one of the points that was really reaffirmed for me with the other people I talked to for the book is, you know, it's too easy of a story to say that the damage from an earthquake is a collapsed building. And that's part of it, but it's not the whole story. One of the, the most chilling things is that that most of the death and devastation of an earthquake happens because of fires mm-hmm. created by earthquake. And then they're compromised because we can't get the fire department to the fire because of the rubble. Another thing that I think that most people don't think about is the fact that, you know, if there is a significant earthquake, one of the most chilling things it's going to do is it's going to knock out power and cell phone communication. So we're not going to have telephones. We're not going to have cell phones. You know, we're not going to have ways to communicate. And that that not only creates problems for first responders, it also creates problems for family. You know, we're seeing that with Maria in Puerto Rico. Right. You know, people who weeks and weeks later are only now being able to sort of stand up and say, hi, we're here, we're, we're alive to their family in the in the contiguous U.S. And, and so those are the sorts of ripple effect problems that create real challenges for communities. Go back to San Francisco earthquake in 1906. And the reason why the city was devastated was more due to the fire than it really was to the earthquake. Am I wrong on that? Or is that kind of how I remember reading history wrong? You are absolutely right. And and it's a, such an important point. And again, it's one that we don't tend to talk about a lot. And this, these, these shakeout scenarios are so useful for that. And, and recognizing, I think, and this is really what I wanted to drive home with this book is, is yes, it is absolutely a Southern California problem. And it is a very real problem for Southern California. But, you know, it's also a really big problem for places that most Americans don't think about, you know, and, and I mentioned the Pacific Northwest, the Pacific Northwest arguably has the potential for the largest earthquake that our country might see. And then there are these really surprising places Salt Lake City has the potential for an incredibly devastating earthquake. Uh, Memphis, which I detail in the book, uh, again, you know, Memphis has a history, um, you know, 1811, 1812 had a series of earthquakes that were eight point something. We don't know exactly, but about 8.0, 8.1, big, which is bigger, incidentally, than that San Francisco, that classic 1906 San Francisco earthquake. And not only is that a problem for places like Memphis and St. Louis and the Mississippi River Valley, but when you consider the fact that, for instance, 
over 4 million packages pass through Memphis every night because of UPS and FedEx. When you consider the fact that about 35 to 40% of our trucking transportation passes one bridge that crosses the Mississippi by Memphis, you know, that becomes not just a regional problem. It also becomes a national and potentially an international problem. And that's really what I want people to think about is it's a micro level problem for a family and a household. It's a problem for a community. And it's really also a global problem when one of these disasters strikes. Look at Japan. I mean, when that, that one struck, I mean, this definitely was a global issue and still still is today, right? Just due to some of the logistical aspects of things uh, coming out of Japan and not to mention the, the nuclear power plant. One of the things I find interesting is talking about faults and the faults that we know that are mapped. But the geologist is saying that the things that scare him the most are the, the faults that they don't know. How do they find new faults? Do you know? Yeah, uh, slowly. (laughs) You know, I mentioned earlier that, you know, the hurricane experts at the National Hurricane Center saying, you know, we're not very good at this. And and there's so much that we don't know. And and one of the things that I sort of start the book off with is that, you know, to the very last, every geologist, every geophysicist, every seismologist that I interviewed for this book just kept saying, we don't really know what happens below the ground. And when you think about it, You know, these earthquakes are happening five miles below the surface, 30 miles below the surface of the earth. And and because we don't know where the next one is going to be, we can't anticipate it and get all these devices there. Um, It's only now, really, that we're starting to develop technologies using GPS, GIS, you know, um, some sophisticated sort of flight-based mapping techniques that we're able to start to kind of find fault. Um, And obviously, it's it's very resource-dependent. So as I say in the book, we have 2,100 known faults in the United States. Uh, the experts at the USGS tell me that there are undoubtedly exponentially more faults in the U.S. Most of the faults that we know about of those 2,100 are west of the Rockies. Part of that is because of the geology there and because there are, you know, there's a lot of sort of seismic activity there. But a lot of it's because we haven't mapped what is east of the Rockies. And so they, you know, they caution that it would be a very dangerous proposition to to assume that just because we haven't found the faults east of the Rockies to assume that they're not there. And one of the really sort of stark facts that I learned when I was writing the book was the fact that, you know, every major earthquake in the U.S. has happened on a fault that we didn't know about. Right to that earthquake and and you know and, and and I should say that includes fault that includes earthquakes in California people think that San Andreas is one fault that runs through California but it's not it's a fault zone and in that fault zone if you think about sort of like the the human circulatory system all of these veins and arteries and capillaries that's a good analogy for this fault zone so we may know where those main arteries are in the San Andreas fault zone but we're finding those new capillaries all of the time and they are also um, capable of creating an earthquake well yeah I mean the Northridge earthquake for example that was an unnamed fault uh, before that occurred, and so much so that they kept asking all the seismologists at Caltech, you know, what's the name of the fault? What's the name of the fault? And Lucy Jones stated at one time that, and it's funny, I keep going back to Lucy, but she's, you know, she's our go-to person. Um, she she says in this interview, she goes, I almost wanted to call it Fred, just so people would stop asking <laughs> what the name of the fault was. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think that that's one reason why Lucy Jones really is sort of the godmother of this work. And and one of the things I love about Lucy Jones is not only is she one of the smartest people on the planet, but she's able to take this incredible expertise that she has and make it real for the general public. And I think that that's so important. You know, it's one thing 
to be an expert and be talking to other experts. But I think that one of the responsibilities we really have is to be able to take that knowledge and make it meaningful for the general public. She does a really great job at that. I've been on a few panels with her. It's always hard to uh, to follow her when she talks because she makes things that are really kind of wonky sound like everybody can understand them. And, and that, that's a great skill to have. Speaking of getting wonky, but you talk a, a few chapters here in the book just about how our world is made and, and what the crust really looks like and, and the whole idea of the chapter of our floating world. How long did it take you to really get into into that and to really understand exactly how our crust is made and, and why we are floating and moving the way we are? Well, and you know, one of the things that's really remarkable to me is just how new of a science this really is. And that was a big surprise for me. You know, I uh, I was born in 1974. And, you know, in my lifetime is really when this notion of plate tectonics sort of gained scientific acceptability and certainty. And, you know, I mean... Maybe I'm not a spring chicken, but, but you know, that's, that's not a lot of time to pass. And, and really, through the 1960s and the 1970s, we debated this notion of plate tectonics, this idea that there were, in fact, these different types of plates, that they were in movement. So one of the things I talk about in the book is, is how this came to be. It was an incredible debate that goes back, you know, centuries, pushed forward. And, and, and it was because of a, a lot of research that looked at things like... Um, you know, oceanic crust, oceanic floor, um, some really fascinating coring work that was being done to try to sort of date the age of different places in, in, in the ocean's crust that we were able to sort of understand how it is that we have this incredible volatility that happens as we have movement and friction and also as we have this constant sort of recirculating old crust becoming new crust becoming mm. magma. I kind of liken it to a pot of, of minestrone soup yes. uh, boiling on the stove. All right, let's take a quick break here and hear a word from our sponsors. Some more from Catherine Miles when we return. Emergencies happen, whether they're related to medical emergencies, threats of physical violence, weather-related, or other. One of the most difficult things during an emergency is to find help and quickly and efficiently communicate with all parties, regardless of whether you're an administrator, law enforcement, or the end user. With Titan HST, we help distort time by creating high-tech yet simple-to-use mobile-based applications that connect you with the people who can help you. At Titan HST, we believe in the power of people. Hi, this is Todd DeVoe from EM Weekly. If your company is in the emergency management and response space, EM Weekly is a place for you to advertise. Each week, we bring in experts in emergency management, response, and leadership from around the world, and they're here to share their best practices. Our listeners are eager to learn about new products and ideas, so this is the space for you. For more information, please contact Brian at brian at emweekly.com. Thank you guys for listening to that uh, quick commercial break. Uh, It's really important for us to be able to go on there and support our, our sponsors, let them know what you think and that you heard about them from us, and let them know how we're doing. So thank you so much for taking the time to listen, and uh, let's talk to Catherine some more. So two things. Uh, One is, the first earthquake that I ever felt, and uh, um, I lived on a street that had uh, trucks drove down a lot. Sometimes a truck would bounce, and the windows would shake. And I remember one morning, um, I thought maybe it was like a large truck doing something that, and our windows shook a little bit louder than normal. And I found out that it was like a little four-point-something earthquake. Like you were saying earlier on in your book, that your first earthquake that you felt was uneventful. It seems to be that way for most of us until we have the eventful earthquake. I guess the reason why I'm kind of going back here a little bit here is that those little small uneventful earthquakes, have they ever been proven or do they ever move into 
a more eventful earthquake? Like, I guess a pre-quake, if you will? That is such a great question. And that is the big question right now for geophysicists. And I think the answer, the tentative answer is we think sometimes yes. And if that sounds like some kind of qualified doublespeak, it is. (laughs) Um, And we know that some of these little quakes are what is called precursory action, right? Mm -hmm. There are these sort of foreshock type events. And in some cases, geophysicists and seismologists feel fairly certain about that. So the most recent Chilean earthquake, there was this rumbling, these small quakes that you were describing that happened prior to that. And two scientists at UC Santa Cruz, Thorne Lay and Emily Brodsky, published a paper in which they they were able to sort of accurately, not predict, but forecast, I guess is a better word, that this rumbling that they were seeing in the Chilean earthquake was precursory action for this much larger quake. The problem right now is we don't know when small quakes are just small quakes and when there are these precursory foreshock rumblings. And then to further complicate things, we also have evidence that small quakes can actually set off larger quakes and not just in the same vicinity. So, for instance, a small quake somewhere in the San Andreas Fault Zone could shift the pressure such that it could create another quake tens or maybe even 100 miles away from that quake. And how that works is still really a big mystery, um, again, in terms of geophysics. And that, I think, is why... All of this unknowability uh, is why it's so important for all of us to really just be so prepared because it's not going to be the case. As you mentioned earlier, you can't forecast it days in advance like you can in a hurricane. I grew up in the Midwest where, you know, in Tornado Alley where, you know, we would get at least 10 minutes of warning about a tornado, which was plenty of time to get down into the basement. Mm -hmm. We have the potential for an early warning system in the US. We have the capability for that. We haven't funded it yet. But as you said earlier, it would probably give us, say, 30 seconds, 45 seconds. Still really important. We should absolutely, absolutely invest in that. And we would undoubtedly save lives with it. Mm -hmm. 30 seconds, 45 seconds, as you said, you know, is not optimal amount of time for preparation, right? And so with all of that in mind, you know, it's really beholden upon all of these communities to assume that the big one is possible, that they assume that the big one may happen in our lifetime and and not to respond to that with sort of fear and, and, you know, chaos, but rather to respond to it with good planning. And back to the uh, early warning system, I do agree that's a very important thing that we should be invested in, because even if it was just that 30 to 45 seconds, if we could get something that would stop elevators and stop trains, you know, that's enough to save lives right there. And it worked in Japan. It did. So it can work here in the United States as well. We just need to, to definitely get the funding into that. Obviously, today, the Great Shakeout it used to be called the Great California Shakeout. And now, you know, rightfully so, just the Great Shakeout, which we do nationwide and worldwide for that matter. Mark Bentham from uh, USC is doing a great job uh, pushing that information out. My son, through kindergarten all the way up um, has been learning about, you know, duck cover and hold. We had a pre-quake one day. I was a little three-something that hit, uh, shook the windows. And then a couple hours later, we had a, a little more significant of an earthquake, which was like a 5.5. And again, everybody goes, oh yeah, 5.5 is nothing. But this one felt like it was right underneath our house. I mean, our walls are shaking, the wall, the water's slushing out of the pool, the, you know, things are falling off the shelf. And he knew instinctively to go underneath a coffee table in the middle of our living room. And at the time, my daughter was two and brought her underneath the uh, the table as well. And I think things like that 
preparing the kids at that age, that's going to save lives as well. And I really think that as emergency managers and those of us that are in this business should really be um, preaching earthquake preparedness, not just in California, not just in in Oregon, not just in in Washington, but nationwide. Because you're right, if we have the Madrid earthquake go off or we have if we have those earthquakes go off in other parts of of the country, kids need to know what they're doing. Adults need to know what they're doing and not to live in fear, but to live in preparation for this thing that's inevitably going to happen in our lifetime. So I do agree with you on that. Sorry, I was on my soapbox for, for a little bit. No, but no, no, it's my soapbox too. And can we just pause and give your son a gold star for knowing exactly <laughs> what to do in that situation? That's amazing. And when you look at, for instance, the recent Mexico quake, you know, it happened on the anniversary of the, the horrendous 1985 earthquake. And right. after Wait, two things happened. Mexico started the first national early warning system, which worked well that day. And Mexico also started a national drill program where every year on the anniversary of that quake, people drill about what to do regardless of the circumstances that they're in. And and the, the fact that that drilling happens every year, the fact that coincidentally it happened on the same day they had been drilling, that saved life. You right. know, I, you know, growing up in the Midwest, I remember really well when um, in the late 80s, people started really paying attention to the new Madrid Falls. And we went from just doing the fire drills and the tornado drills to also doing the earthquake drills. And that's the kind of thing that we all need to be doing. Yeah, I agree with you. Hey, um, two things about Mexico. One is Mexico also, because of the the, uh, the 1985 earthquake, was one of the reasons why CERT started uh, in California. Oddly enough, was Mex- the Mexican earthquake. And, you know, the CERT program is, has grown exponentially since then. And, and uh, I think it's a really well worth program. Even if even if people don't want to become volunteers in the CERT program, it's really good training just for your stuff at your home. So that's one thing. And kind of piggyback on the other question I had, with the, with the Mexico earthquake... The Mexico City earthquake. Did the earthquake in southern Mexico trigger that one as well? Did have they figured that out, or is that still kind of unknown science? It's unknown. The seismologists that I've spoken to say they think it's unlikely because of the time and the distance. Mm-hmm. Um, but but we can't say for certain. Um, I think what what they would say is, look, you know, we're probably never going to know exactly whether or not it was caused, and that's that's all the more reason sort of to be prepared. Um, and and what you're saying about this idea of sort of um, citizen action, I think, is so important. Whether it's citizen science or whether it's that preparedness, some of the best work that I felt like I did researching this book was meeting with emergency managers in places like the Pacific Northwest and and watching the way in which they were educating communities and, and helping communities to educate themselves. And there's also incredible innovation that's happening right now that has people, again, serving as citizen scientists that, you know, by enabling their smartphones uh, to record data and things like that, they can provide much needed data. Um, and I think that that's really the wave of the future is, is recognizing that we all can play this incredibly useful role, that we don't have to wait for first responders, that mm-hmm. we, you know, Know, that we can, in fact, do things to keep ourselves safe, make ourselves more resilient, and frankly, even participate in the science and the research as it's happening. I think that that's both empowering for people, and I think it's also a way to really sort of democratize this in a way that's that's meaningful. I think that once you are ready and you're participating, whether you are using your smartphone as a uh, as a as a reader for the earthquake that's going on, or you're prepared because you know that you're going to be able to go out and and help your community, it takes that fear of the disaster away. And I think that saves lives as well. Yeah, you know, and fear is such a fear is such a tricky thing, you know, like to a certain degree, a healthy fear 
sparks action, right? But but I think the problem becomes when fear becomes sensational or inflammatory or paralyzing. And so I don't know what a better word is than fear, but maybe something like respect, you know? Mm-hmm. I remember when I interviewed a, uh, a Coast Guard officer uh, for my work on the Superstorm book, and, you know, he said, my one of my very favorite quotes of all time, he said, you know, Mo- Mother Nature plays to win, and she'll beat you every time. <laughs> and, and I think if we acknowledge that and we look at Mother Nature with, you know, sort of respect and reverence, um, and we recognize that 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 what the best option we have is to be prepared for what what she has in store. You know, maybe that's not fear, but it's certainly it's respect or it's caution or it's something like that. I like the idea uh, of the idea of respect. You know, moving things cautiously because it, not on the topic of of the earthquake, but kind of going back to the storms. I was talking to uh, Craig Fugate. And we're discussing choosing where to build your home with knowledge of what the landscape is and can do and, and what it can't do. You know, and we see a lot of people building homes on the mangrove uh, you know, woods in, in Florida. And when these big storms come in, uh, we're surprised when, or we're not, but people are surprised when, you know, these these homes are flooded out and, and destroyed and, and the thousands and millions of dollars that are spent in, in rebuilding them through insurance and whatnot. And I think the same thing with earthquakes. If we can have an idea of how to build uh, for them, respect the fact that it's going to occur and and how we can build homes that are going to be sustainable and resilient um, to the shaking. And, you know, I think that right there can, number one, save lives. Number two, save structures. And and number three, just make people not as... as um, vulnerable to to the changes of, of nature. What do you think of that? I think that's so great. And and you said two of my very favorite words there, you know, um, and I, you know, I've been an environmental studies professor since 2001. And much of my work has been focused on this notion of sustainability, but and I'm, you know, utterly committed to, to sustainability in every sense of the word. But I like this word resilient better. Than sustainable. And I think that if we look at what, for instance, emergency managers are telling us in terms of what we needed to be doing for our communities, this idea of building a resilient community, it becomes not just a defensive posture, right? It's not just we're going to build our home or we're going to build our community so that we're prepared for that next natural disaster. It is that, but it's also saying we're going to build a more vibrant community. We're going to build a community that withstands any kind of adversity better. We're going to build a communicate that communicates, that has plans, that has contingency plans in place where people are ready to help. Um, and we all win in that case, whether or not the natural disaster ever strikes. One of the things that I, I really am a proponent of is when we're doing our plans as emergency managers, include the community in that. And sometimes it's frustrating, right? Because we'll go out and we'll have these great community meetings and we'll bring groups in to talk about our plans and, and to and be inclusive with them. And sometimes we can't get anybody to show up to these meetings because, you know, everybody's busy. And, and it doesn't, it's not important to them. And one of the things I told one of my students one time is I said, you know, we can't be frustrated by these and we have to keep doing these because it's important when it becomes important. And if you can show that you're doing what you're supposed to be doing and involved in the community, they can never say that they weren't brought in. That's one of the frustrations as an emergency manager is how do we, you know, encourage community participation? And I do that through community groups like CERT, going and talking to the Red Cross volunteer groups, going and talking to the ham operators with the RACES program 
programs, you know, and I'm building these bridges with people that are already interested in, in disaster response and community itself and and making those people uh, part of the solution and doing our neighbor for neighbor programs where we have neighborhoods now that are preparing and taking care of each other because we don't we tend not to do that anymore here uh, and, and again it's building that community and then the next time when I have to do uh, a plan and I want to bring the community in I already have a built up group of people that are preparing and going to come and give good input and share that information with their neighbors. So I think that's really important that we do build a resilient community, not just emergency managers and first responders that know what to do, that we go down to that local level and build that community from the ground up. That is so great. And, you know, I don't envy you, but your work is so important on that front. And, you know, when I was doing research for, for both of these books, I talked to a really wonderful scholar of, of risk and risk management at the University of Oregon named Paul Slovic, and he runs the, the Risk Center. And, you know, he said, look, you know, I've, you know I've, I've done a ton of research on the subject. And he said, if you ask the average American what is the biggest risk they face on a daily basis, they'll tell you it's either you know, nuclear disaster or terrorist attack, right? And you know, and, and your listeners know that, that those fall really far down the list of potential problems. And it's things like car accidents and health problems and frankly, natural disasters. And yet as a culture, we have such a lack of imagination for those. One of the most chilling facts for me when I was researching Superstorm was the fact that in, in New York and New Jersey, over 70% of the people ordered to evacuate in the face of that storm didn't evacuate because they didn't believe it was actually going to be a problem. And right. until we find a way to create this paradigm shift, until we find a way to actually, as a culture and as a society, say the threat of natural disaster is real, you know, we need to be empowering emergency managers to create robust plans. We need to be internalizing those plans. Until we do that, guys rise to the task again and again and again. Thank goodness, right? Because you keep people like me safe every day. <laughs> well, you know, we uh, we try. I, I kind of chuckle because it's it's that is such the the frustration for us is to is to get the word out. And when we make the decision, and when I say we, it's a collective we with whoever's up in, in the emergency operations center at the time with the fire and and, and police and and of course emergency management uh, of evacuation. It's not never ever a decision that's taken lightly, and we go through that process. I don't know if you've watched the firestorms that are going out of here, but Napa, a whole entire community was burnt, and people didn't. Some people didn't leave, and we're still not sure how many uh, deaths occurred up there because they decided to stay, do what they wanted to do. So, yeah, I mean, it is that is a frustrating point is to try to get that evacuation. And if we go over and over again, look at Katrina, look at Harvey, look at, you know, Superstorm Sandy, those things where we have asked people to leave and they stay. And it just puts everybody at risk. And it's, it's a hard decision, I understand. But we don't make that, that call lightly. Yeah, and that's really, you know, where I feel like the a kind of partnership between the work that, that people like I do and the work that people like you do can do. I remember I once was talking to a woman who was this very famous ecologist, and she said, you know, I wish every scientist had an, a journalist or an environmental writer in their pocket, you know? And, and so if I can tell your story in a way that compels people to, for instance, have a go bag, if I can right. tell your story in a way that makes people notice an evacuation sign when they see it or make 
make sure they don't have anything, uh, you know, above their bed, then I feel like I've done my job. And so I feel like my job is to sit with very patient people like you, very patient scientists and emergency managers who are willing to break everything down for me again and again and again. And then, you know, if I can take that and find a way to tell it as a narrative that people will pick up and, you know, buy in an airplane or read on a beach, then, then maybe collectively we can get the word out in a way that actually sort of, you know, changes hearts and minds. Well, Catherine, thank you so much for being with us today. And again, here on uh, The Great Shakeout, uh, hopefully everybody participated in their drill today or, you know, helped people participate in a drill. Everybody, I really recommend this book. It's uh, Catherine Miles' Quakeland. You can get it anywhere uh, you can buy your books. I'll put a link to it here at the bottom of the of the show notes here. And Catherine, normally I ask, uh, what book do you recommend for anybody who is in this business? And obviously we're going to recommend Quakeland today. Uh, that being said, if you're interested in Superstorm Standy, she has a book with that too. So I recommend looking at both of those. And uh, so Catherine, anything else you want to say before we say goodbye? I just, you know, without, you know, with running the risk of pandering, I just want to say thank you. And thank you to your listeners for the work that you all do. Honestly, I have so much respect. And like I said, if, if I can do a little piece to kind of get the word out about the incredibly important work that you do, then I feel really happy with the job that I've done. Well, thank you so much for being here. You have a wonderful day. Thank you so much. 